Computer, initialize Holosuite. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hoorah, tally ho. Hey baby doll. Hey Putin. Alright, let's open up Starlog Magazine, issue number 7, cover date August of 1977. There is a Star Trek blurb on the front that says Star Trek Report. So we look forward to seeing what the report is. Communications. Trek Commemorative. Every year, the U.S. Postal Service puts out a number of various commemorative stamps as salutes to a myriad of people, places, and things. Why not recognize Star Trek with a commemorative stamp? Join us now and write to the Postmaster General in Washington, D.C. Starlog Editor's comment. Wonderful idea. Star Trek fans have proven they can accomplish almost anything when they launch a full effort. Meantime, short of an official government stamp, collectors will be interested in the new Star Trek stamp album and stamp packets advertised for the first time anywhere on page 69 of this issue. We've seen them and they are truly fantastic. In fact... Some people at Paramount have gone so far as to say that this is the finest Trek product yet produced. Well, well yeah, I mean, Star Trek stamps are still popular. And, and you know, you're the one that told me that, that you can just get them by going to the post office and asking for them. <laughs> I never so, knew that. Some <laughs> post offices currently still have them. They came out maybe, I'm going to guess, four or five years ago. But they're forever stamps. So we we have a couple hundred of them. When they came out, we, we bought <laughs> yeah. so many of them, we'll be having... Star Trek stamps forever since they last forever. Yeah, that that is so cool. Anti-censorship. Now this is a extremely lengthy letter talking about remember in Starlog magazine there was a news a, a TV station in Texas that was censoring Star Trek episodes. Yes. We we talked about that one when we were on that issue. And um so this person was saying they they don't agree with it. I mean, even though, you know, you might be religious, but, but we still, you still watch religious things on TV, and it doesn't always have to agree with your beliefs. That's right. Merle Talaferro of Kingsport, Tennessee, made this comment. Since the Supreme Court made it its super blunder for a decade by decreeing that communities could set standards of taste and prosecute and punish those who disagreed with them, all the weirdos are crawling out of the woodwork. Obscenity, pornography, blasphemy exist in certain people's minds. They are not entities. Unless the public screams long and loud about this censorship, the court will not admit its error and issue another interpretation. And he goes on and on to give a scenario of, can you imagine having to travel across the United States just to watch complete episodes of Star Trek because different communities decide to edit out portions of the episode, if not the entire episode. Yeah, this was a funny story. Like, some, of the, I mean, you know, I think it's made up, but it's like, okay, we want to watch the last 10 minutes of the episode Return of the Archons, and we had to drive, like, somewhere to another state to be able to watch it. And um, and we tried to watch it, but they still didn't show the last 10 minutes. So we're going to drive to another state to see if we can watch it. You got to yeah. 1977. The average person did not have a VCR, or yeah, yeah. or the or the VHS tapes, or anything, or DVDs. Yeah. <laughs> Streaming, none of that. <laughs> you had to watch it live. 
or you didn't watch it at all. So, interesting concept. This is what Star Trek fans had to go to through back in 1977. (whistles) Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Log entries. NASA hires Nichols to recruit. NASA has awarded a contract totaling $49,900 to the Women in Motion production, Los Angeles, California, for the service of acquainting potential minority group applicants with the opportunities available to them in the Shuttle Astronaut Recruitment Program. Under the terms of the contract, Ms. Nichelle Nichols, Lt. Uhura, will be available for contacting community organizations, colleges, institutions, and individuals to familiarize them with the requirements for qualifying as Space Shuttle Astronauts. Ms. Nichols is the Executive Vice President of the contracting firm. Wow, this was awesome during that time. And it was great that Michelle wanted to do that, and I know she she was really excited about it. She's talked about it at cons. And she actually did recruit a, a lot of people. Uh, they wanted, what, different different ethnic groups and, and women. So, so people who who never thought about, hey, hey, maybe I could do that. And, and, and so she would go to colleges and try to recruit people. And they said even trying to do like, like direct recruiting as well. So that, so that was just, I, I mean, you know, like NASA was so big back then too. I mean, NASA was always in the news when we were growing up. Yeah. It was a yes. big deal when there were rocket launches. You could watch them on TV. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, can you imagine being recruited by Michelle Nichols? Oh, I know. I mean, it had to be exciting. It had to be like a dream come true. To, well, to be recruited by NASA and and to meet Michelle Nichols. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. I mean, what an awesome life event. L.A. Con draws big names, yields big news. Now, this is a convention that went on. It's a report about various celebrities that were at the convention, um, including Ray Bradbury, a variety of other of luminaries in the literary field as well as actors. But what's unique about this convention is fans put together a full-size bridge. They reconstructed it in a room. So maybe back then that was the first time that had been done because, because you know, we, we see it a lot now. But, but it is a huge effort to do that. And they had to spend a lot of time and, like, like I can imagine, like, looking at a lot of pictures going, is that right? Is that right? You know? Pre-internet, it had to be virtually impossible. Like, yes, true labor yes. of love. The Enterprise in Action. Now, this is a report about the Enterprise shuttle that went into space. Attention, NASA is still in the process of recruiting potential future astronauts. Applications for the Astronaut Candidate Program are available through June 30th, 1977. You must specify whether you are applying as a pilot or mission specialist. And the address is Johnson Space Center, Houston, Texas. And it's an entire plethora of photos of the Enterprise Space Shuttle. And this was interesting, too. Of course, we know that the, that the fans voted or, or, you know, people voted on what to name the Space Shuttle. And Enterprise is what got the most votes because Star Trek was, of course, very popular back then. And um, and it's interesting how they so they they had astronaut applications. I, I mean that is so neat. So they they were actually trying to recruit people, and of course we we know this later led to um, the the Challenger thing with uh, with Krista McCullough, the teacher, being on a space shuttle, and of course that didn't end well. But this was 
back at a time of a lot of excitement about the space shuttle and, and travel, leaving the Earth, you know, and, and it was just so cool. And they, they one of these pictures is an artist rendition, too, of the Enterprise, and that was just, that is just an awesome picture. And they're take, talking about how it had to be flown, too, piggyback on, there was actually another plane, a 747, that had to take the space shuttle Enterprise from one place to another on Earth until they could launch it. Star Trek Report, a fan news column by Susan Sackett. Well, this is a report on what's going on with the Star Trek motion picture. Screenwriters Alan Scott and Chris Bryant. Okay, so first of all, so this was 77. So the movie changed, you know, writers after this, of course. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's very interesting to see this and how... Well, like this is talking about some writers that we've never even heard of, and that at the time they were writing for for Star Trek: The Motion Picture, they were the ones doing the script. And they were waiting the script's second draft. We know that the script went into numerous drafts. Also, it gives report about Gene Roddenberry's working on Spectre, which would be a TV movie. Yeah, that one I don't think I saw. I think that was the one that had more supernatural stuff in it instead of sci-fi, and somehow it never came on TV at a, at, like after I had heard about it. Also, Trek-related news that Susan Sackett gives is that Gene Roddenberry was working with Paul McCartney. It says he was in England working closely with Paul McCartney on the film he is writing for Paul and the Wings Group. It began, began last summer when Wings did an appearance at the Forum at the Los, in Los Angeles. Paul has always been a Trek fan. And one afternoon, he telephoned our office and set up an appointment with Gene. Pretty wild to think that. I don't believe anything ever came out of it. Yeah, when you go back and read this stuff that's so old, and you're like, well, I don't remember that. <laughs> well, yeah, because it was like, I mean, of course, Gene must have been working with a lot of fans. And so some things materialized and some didn't. But that is still awesome to think that Paul McCartney was a Star Trek fan. Paul McCartney's a big nerd. He wanted to make a Lord of the Rings movie. Really? And have all the Beatles play different parts in it. I mean, can you imagine how weird that would have been? <laughs> Other Star Trek news. And and again, the Trek report doesn't just talk about Trek. A lot of it's Gene Roddenberry-oriented. Another Gene Roddenberry project, Battleground Earth. Which is what became Earth Final Conflict. Mm-hmm. And it says Gene is completing his novelization of the original Star Trek movie script, the one Paramount rejected, tentatively titled The God Thing. It's due to be published by Bantam Books late this year. Well, that never happened. <laughs> 1977 did not see a Gene Roddenberry. Well, no, but he did end up writing the novelization for the motion picture, of course. It came out much later than that. Right, yeah. yeah. Two years later. And it was probably still based on The God Machine. He, um... I know that story has been released before, and it and it has some similarities to the motion picture. Gene always loved the um, the idea of of bumping God, making it something you know something a machine or something else, and it happened on many Star Trek episodes. It was too. a constant theme in Trek. Future conventions. Star Trek Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, July fifteenth through eighteenth. Yeah, this was, and I keep saying this, this was still before they put the uh, the names of the guests who would be at these cons, but it does have, um, do, 
Oh, Chattacon. That one's still around. Mm-hmm. Chattacon 3 in Chattanooga, Tennessee, January 6th through 8th, 1978. Which is not a Star Trek convention, but it, it's still a, a popular con. Star Trek America, New York City, September 2nd through 5th, 1977. Infinite Star 77, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Starlog interview. Screenwriter Alan Scott talks about Star Trek, the movie. What did you think about this article? Um, yeah, this was interesting, too. Now, 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 see what this one says about these two guys that they hired to write, to write the Star Trek movie. They, they were not familiar with Star Trek or, or science fiction. They had done some horror movie that Gene Roddenberry liked. Okay, so wait a second. So we're talking about Star Trek Discovery now? Oh, I know. Doesn't it remind you of that? So, 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 you know. <laughs> so I guess in this, in the TV movie world, I mean, you know, people can switch to genres they've never done before. It's, so, I mean, it's not unheard of, even though, you know, I, I'm glad they, they got someone who, who was familiar with science fiction eventually. But it does say that these two guys, um, they did prepare for it. I mean, at least they did some research. They went back and watched all 79 episodes of the original. That's of fine. Course, I, if you yeah. if you respect the source material and you're a creative person, I can deal with that. I mean, yeah, at least they took the time to do that. that Harv Bennett. Yeah. Harv Bennett of Six Million Dollar fame. Granted, that's science fiction, but he was able to go back and pick out the con episode to make Star Trek too. So, again, he's not someone that was a Star Trek fan per se. But he did the work necessary. And it, it's, yeah, it's, so it's Alan, great to hear that Alan, they did that. Alan Scott put forth the effort. So, there. and, um, I mean, I mean, of course now that they would have to, there's, there's a lot more, like they can't watch 800 episodes now, you know. Star Trek just had the 800 episodes. You're episode. doomed. <laughs> if you're not a Trek fan, you're doomed now if you're in the right, writer's room. Right. Yeah, yeah. So they really should hire fans now. But anyway, going back to this, um, Oh, and, and it says that the other thing the writers did, they watched a lot of science fiction movies, too, and started reading science fiction books to, to get familiar with it. So so at least they, they did that much, even though they wound up what writing, you know, well, we'll get to, the, I think there's another article that says they wrote scripts that got rejected, but... I think it's interesting that one of the sources that they used for science fiction movies was... 2001 A Space Odyssey. Right. And you get that, that was the big sci-fi of that era. It, yeah, it that was... That was considered high-level science It fiction. was already a classic then, but, but mm-hmm. it was a, a movie that a lot of people called slow and boring, and what did people call Star Trek the motion picture? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that, was, that was neat to read about that, too. And so, you know, we know that later on it was, it was different people that, that wrote it. But they knew early on that they wanted to have a heavy weight to the film. They wanted to spend some time with the special effects, and they wanted to take advantage of the scale. And that's one thing that I will always say about the motion picture, is that you do get an immense set of scale when you look at the Enterprise, those shots. You, you feel the weight of the Enterprise. It's absolutely yes. beautiful. Well, I mean, it's it's... A movie, so it's bigger than, than what they did on the TV series, naturally, and that's what they were going for. But then, you, you know, but as, as I believed, is it's kind of, 
Star Trek was never really about as much about the visuals as it was the stories, even though it was great. And the to relationships, look at. yes, right, yes. But uh, but it was cool to see it in the movie and having the big shots of the Enterprise. That's one of the things that that they talked about in this article that was kept mm-hmm. was the uh, shots of the Enterprise and uh, some of the interior shots. Um, we didn't see a bio lab. They mentioned a bio lab. That might have been neat. And something else they mentioned too was about. Um, they said the movie, I mean, of course it has to be for fans, but it also has to be, it has to bring in other people. Because they said, they said if, if all the fans see the movie three times, that still won't pay for the movie. And that's an interesting thought too. So, so they. And that's how it is yeah. with movies today. Exactly. Because Every movies movie are is so made, expensive. Movies are made for casual people. The fans are just gravy. The existing yeah, fans. Right. Which is, yeah, yeah, that's a shame because then you get the movies like Star Trek 2009, which I suppose it did bring in people that weren't usually the fans. So in that way, they kind of did what they wanted, but they still, they alienated the, the regular fans. And so there needs to be a way to, to satisfy the, the fans and bring in new fans. It's interesting because we got to figure in 1977, at the time of this publication, Star Wars wasn't out yet. And the big science fiction of the time was Star Trek. And their big concern was they were worried that people wouldn't want to leave home to pay for something that they could watch for free. Because once they hear Star Trek, they associated it with free television. And they said the difficulty has been in defining the difference between what is television and what is a movie. It has to have TV it has to have uh, TV weight. I'm not sure really what that means. So people were worried that it would be TV shows tend to be lighter than movies, which tend to be heavier. So they had to figure out a way. When you think about this is the first time a television show has ever gone to be a movie, ever. Right, it's always been that, the other way around. That's something else they said there, too. Yes. Yeah, this is the so, first time. It's always been movies have been turned to television shows. Play of the Apes, things like that. So they were saying, okay, this has to be a bigger story, a meatier story. And so early on that they were thinking about that, they were worried that people would not come to pay to see Star Trek. Which Can you again, imagine that? Again, um, sounds like Discovery. Because when Discovery was on CBS All Access where people had to pay for it, and yeah, and we know a lot of these people who, who said like, well, I'm not going to pay for Star Trek, you know. I, I mean, yeah, so, so mm-hmm. this is, um, like, like it's almost like modern times now, a few things, you know, ring true now. But yeah, so they had to come up with a way to make people want to see it. And, and really to me though, it wasn't that hard to get me to want to see it, you know, because, because I, I had already seen all the episodes. Well, you said you hadn't mm-hmm. seen them at the time of the motion picture, but I had already seen them. Mm-hmm. So it was great to see something new. So, I mean, so I was really excited about this movie. I mean, and, you know, I'm saying that's one reason, because it was a new story, even though, even though it mm-hmm. was <laughs> turned out to be similar to some oh, other stories. Oh, there's no doubt about but, it. Yeah. I mean, my, my brother, even though my brother's a year younger than me, he has a better memory than I do, and he says... When our father brought us there, my dad wanted to see it too. Like that, yeah, that was yeah. at that time, that was the passing the torch, the generational thing that I watched this show. Now I want my kids to watch this show with me, but on the big screen. This is the next step for the next generation. And, and that is cool because it, yeah, it's like the parents taking their kids, which is, 
which is analogous to what Star the modern Star Wars movies. It's common their now. Kids it's to, common yeah, now. Sure. Yeah. There just there wasn't anything that lasted that long previous to Star Trek. Star Trek was groundbreaking in so many ways, as we said, being the first uh, TV series that they made a movie out of, and then yeah, carrying on generations. It it was just. Um, a landmark show, and it's still going on today. We're we're so happy that this is happening. Mm-hmm. But early on, it's fascinating. Look at the development. How many changes there were in this movie? Into the wild blue yonder, there is an awesome place open to the public at which, where we're going to meets where we have been, the National Air and Space Museum. Now, we had the opportunity to go to the National National Air and Space Museum and got to see the Enterprise on display there, the original Enterprise from the series. But it's fascinating to look at this, that when the Air and Space Museum opened up in 1976, they had the original series Enterprise there as well. And they had it... Um... Hanging up above from strings, there was a picture in here, and it's, and and I've seen that picture before. That that's that's so neat. It's something that's been passed around through the ages too. That picture of the Enterprise from the Smithsonian. It's amazing. At that time, you got to figure it was only ten years old. The ship, they didn't view it as hollowed. They just hung it up on wires. Now, it is encased. It has a special lighting system to it. It has been restored. You can tell that the, it's a big difference to the care of the ship than to now. Yeah, they have it. They have it on the ground now, where you can walk around it, which is much better because you can see it up close. See all and, the details. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. It, it's beautiful. I mean, they've you know they've tried to restore it, which there there have been. Articles written about that too, how they restored it and everything, and um, and you can still see the the lights, and and you can also you can still see some deterioration because you know it's from the '60s, so you know it's going to have some, but it still looks it looks wonderful. What's amazing about this article is that it brings out that originally the museum was going to be called the National Air Museum. It was a last minute effort to put space in there. And you're like, wow, I never really thought about that because before the space program, it was just going to be a museum of aircraft. But once the space program really got big, they had to tweak it a little bit. So the National Air and Space Museum does give the entire history of man's flight into space from Kitty Hawk all the way to modern day. It does. And I... I mean, it's a huge place. You know, it has to be because it has to hold airplanes and these the space capsules and everything. I think that's one of the funnest things, looking at the space capsules up close. Yeah, and they, they have the door open so you can see inside and see the seats and everything. I almost get claustrophobia just looking at it saying, oh, I can't imagine <laughs> being in this. I mean, I mean it's, yeah, it's smaller than than some cars, you know, on the inside. I mean, it's... But it's it's yeah it was awesome to get to go there and see it and and to see the history of flight to see the the old style airplanes up to the the huge jets that we have now and then all all of the uh, the space vehicles or and the uh, the satellites and everything cosmic awakening that's a good thing to call it yeah there's no doubt about it 
all the effort that was put into this museum and to this day it's it's worth visiting it's absolutely a must for any star trek fan and star trek fans are fans of real world science advertisement for star drek bobby pickett and peter ferrara present star drek hilarious 45 rpm single record spoof personally autographed by mr monster mash send 199 to bobby pickett malibu california well <laughs> that was pretty cheap wasn't it a dollar 99 for 45 Hey, let's listen to it. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Booby Prize, its five-year mission to sell T-shirts, toy phasers, plastic communicators, and anything else we can think of to seek out new life in old plots and complications to boldly go where everyone has gone before. Star Trek. Captain's Log, Stardate 6935.2. We are in orbit around the planet Schwartz. Engineering the Captain Jerk. Engineering the Captain Jerk. Jerk here, what is it, Snotty? Captain, the warp drive mechanisms are generating excess antimatter. The pods are overloading now. If it continues at this rate, are can be responsible for the safety of the ship? Don't have a spaz, Snotty. Ah, but the whole ship's gonna blow itself to pieces, Jim. I want answers, mister. Well, I tried shoving a wiener on the walk drive, but it didn't do a bit of good. By the by, would you have a wee bit of mustard up on the bridge? Mr. Schlock? No mustard, Captain. Analysis, Schlock? It would appear that Lieutenant Snot is about to eat a wiener without mustard. As always, your logic is impeccable, Mr. Schlock. However, I was referring to the emergency in the ship's warp drive. I would say that the program is at too early a stage to permit solving any serious difficulties, Jim. Recommendation? Suggest you wait for further plot complication before undertaking corrective measures. Logical, Mr. Schlock. Perfectly logical, Dr. McCoy. I'm a doctor, not a scriptwriter. Warning, this is a plot complication. Warning, this is a plot complication. Warning. Plot complication showing up on ship's sensors now, Captain. I'm switching to visual. What is it, Mr. Schlock? Computer data is coming in now, Captain. It's just what we need. A colossal negative space wedgie of great power coming right at us at warp speed. Uh, Mr. Lulu, commence evasive actions. Yes, Captain Jack. Evasive actions ineffective, Captain. The wedgie is turning with us and closing rapidly. Estimated time of impact, approximately 16.9 seconds. 15. Bridge to engineering. It's not here, Captain. 13, What's not there, Snotty? 12, I said it's not here. Snotty, give me full power. Get us out of here fast. Ah, uh, I cannot do it. The toilet's are bumped up into the walk drive. It'll take time to make the Time? Mr. Schlock? One. Wipe out. Readings are off the scale, Captain. I have not encountered this phenomenon before. Damage report, Lieutenant Manura? Honey, I'd say we took a shellacking out here. Fascinating. What is it, Mr. Schlock? The force field seems to have passed through us and entered the surface of the planet Schwartz. Yet tricorder readings fail to indicate any such energy from the planet. Opinion, Mr. Schlock? Insufficient data, Captain. 
Into the elevator, Mr. Schlock. Let's beam down to the planet's surface so I can find an alien to fall in love with before the program's over. You usually do. Ain't I something? Uh, Mr. Lulu, you've got the con. Thank you, Captain Jack. Elevator, transporter room. I'm fine. How are you? Elevator, I said transporter room. I'm fine. How are you? Oh, forget it. Elevator to engineering. Beam us down from here, Snotty. Aye, aye, Captain. You're locked on coordinates now. Energize, Mr. Snot. Remarkable. There is no record of any such civilization as this on the planet Schwartz. Look, Schlock, here comes a car and feast your Vulcan squinties on that driver. Far out, Captain Jerk. Want a lift, sailor? As a matter of fact, I do. I'll say goodbye here, Mr. Schlock. Now you'll have what you always wanted, command of the booby prize. And you'll have what you always wanted. What's that, Mr. Schlock? A bleach blonde in red convertible on planet Schwartz. <laughs> Ain't I something? Well, say bye-bye to Starfleet Command for me, and I'll see you on Hollywood Squares. Bye-bye, Jim. I thought he'd never go. Schlock to booby prize. Snot here, Mr. Schlock. What's not there, Lieutenant Snot? I said snot here, Mr. Schlock. That's Captain Schlock. I? Make it one to beam up. Authentic Detailed Blueprints by Jeffrey Mandel. You can buy Star Trek Blueprints. Space Station K7, four sheets, 17 by 22, $4 plus postage, as well as the fan-made USS Independence Starfleet Armed Freighter Class. 11 sheets, 14 by 8.5 for three twenty-five plus postage. Special offer, Star Trek original hand-painted cells are now available. Again, this is something else that I always wanted as a kid when I see it advertised. All the cells from the animated series. I remember these ads too, and they were beautiful pictures. Twenty dollars each, and tell you what, a dollar fifty postage. Twenty-one dollars for me as a kid, it might have been a million dollars. I was like, where would I get twenty dollars from? <laughs> yeah, and back in the seventies too. Hi, I'm Michelle Nichols, but I still feel a little bit like Lieutenant Uhura of the Starship Enterprise. You know, now there's a twentieth-century Enterprise. An actual space vehicle built by NASA and designed to put us in the business of space, not merely ex space exploration. Now, NASA's Enterprise is a space shuttle built to make regularly scheduled runs into space and back, just like a commercial airline. The shuttle may even be used to build a space station in orbit around the Earth. And this would require the services of people with a variety of skills and qualifications. Average good health is required, and candidates will train right here at Johnson Space Center, just outside Houston, Texas. Now, the shuttle will be taking scientists and engineers, men and women of all races, into space, just like the astronaut crew on the Starship Enterprise. So that is why I'm speaking to the whole family of humankind, minorities and women alike. If you qualify and would like to be an astronaut, now is the time. This is your NASA. A space agency embarked on a mission to improve the quality of life on planet Earth right now. Starlog Magazine, issue number eight. Cover date, September 1977. And this one 
Also has some Star Trek articles. Not much Star Trek on the cover, if any. Interior advertisement. You can't buy Trek on a newsstand. Now, you used to read this magazine, correct? Trek, the magazine for Star Trek fans, based out of Houston, Texas? Well, what I did was I just, I ordered one issue of the actual magazine. But, of course, they had the best of Trek that was published as paperback books. See, that's how I knew it, the paperback books. Yeah, that's what I, I mean, that's what I read first. And then I, I was wondering, like, okay, if this is best of Trek, then what is Trek exactly? I never saw this magazine before because, like I said, it wasn't on a newsstand. So right, you, so how did people you, even know about it besides, what, reading in Starlog? Exactly. Right? You had to subscribe to it. So, unfortunately, at the time, now, as adult collectors, we have them. But at the time, I, I didn't, I never saw it, but I loved those Best of Trek books. Yeah, I loved reading those. And that's those are really how I found out so much about, about Star Trek and about fandom and, and what all was out there that I was missing back then. Agreed. Communications. Takei Ran Sulu Band. I'm sure you will receive many letters pointing out an error in your list of the animated Star Trek episodes in Starlog number 6. Namely, that the episode Beyond the Farthest Star was first aired on September 8, 1973, not December 22, 1973. Since your information came from the Star Trek Concordance, the goof really isn't yours. There's an interesting explanation for the error. In September 1973, when the animated Star Trek debuted, George Takei, who of course played Mr. Sulu, was running for political office in Los Angeles. Mr. Takei's opponents complained that his appearance in reruns of the live-action Star Trek on KCOP-TV were in violation of the equal time rule. To avoid having to give equal time to every other candidate, KCOP yanked every episode featuring Mr. Sulu off their schedule until after the election. Since the initial animated episode, Beyond the Farthest Star, featured Sulu, it could not be run. So the first air date in Los Angeles for Beyond was the date of the first rerun for the rest of the country, December 22, 1973. How cool is that piece of trivia? I, I did hear things about um, Takei running, and and um, he said he didn't really want Star Trek to be tampered with, but somehow they, yeah, that that was just something that happened. And and so the concordance was written by B. Joe Trimble, and she must have put it, put in the dates that she knew of. Because she's from the Los in Angeles LA. area. Not, yeah. And she, she must not have known that, it, that those weren't, that that wasn't the actual date that it was first aired. Mm-hmm. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Log entries. Shatner live on records. When William Shatner went on tour this past season, visiting college campuses with his one-man show, he was not alone. Not only were those evenings shared with thousands of enthusiastic Star Trek, science fiction, and Shatner fans, but apparently there were professional recording engineers present. The best moments from the tour have been turned into a new two-record album dressed up with some jazzy graphics, exclusive photos, and an autographed poster of the man himself. The program starts with several exciting excerpts from Shakespeare. 
Rostin and H.G. Wells dramatically read and tracing the development of science fiction through the ages. The climax features Shatner's lively, humorous banter with the audience as he fields questions on his historic series and entertains with rare combination of wit and intelligence. The album is titled William Shatner Live and is scheduled for release in late June. We have that yeah. album. It's great. <laughs> I love the cover of it as well. Well, what's neat is that William Shatner is still doing those kind of things today, um, still making albums and still doing his, his talks. But but another thing, too, is that Shatner and also Gene Roddenberry were, were doing college tours back then. Mm-hmm. And that is not as common now. Because I mean, Shatner tours now, but not just colleges. I mean, they must have realized they they can reach a bigger audience just for just going to see ordinary people. You got to figure out all those kids that were college age in 1977 are very well grown adults now that would just go to a theater to watch him. Right, and, and because now people take they can take their families to see these shows. I mean, back then they're just talking like college students. I mean, that's just a certain it's, it's a very uh, niche group of people. Mm-hmm. Starlog exclusive interview. Harlan Ellison, science fiction's last angry man. Now, Star Trek fans, we know and love Harlan Ellison from... City on the Edge of Forever. And, and of course, and we've also heard stories about Harlan, about how that was not a pleasant experience for him uh, writing for Star Trek. And he mentions I don't it, think there's yeah. anything in this guy's life that is a pleasant experience. I mean, he is grumpy. Oh, he is. But he's funny, too. I mean, I did, I did see him. I saw him in person at Dragon Con one year. And, um, and, and he went, like, the room was crowded for him. He was in one of the big ballrooms. And he was great. You know, he's a great speaker. He's funny. And, and, and he knows that he's, um, well hated. <laughs> Guy loves to be hated. He's found his niche in that I'm just going to be cantankerous and I'm going to attack things and I'm going to question things. Well, well and... yeah, but I mean, he you know, he he stands behind his work and mm-hmm. he, and he is hard to work with. I mean, even No one reading... likes working with this guy. Right, right. I'm saying so it's not all an act. I mean, he does, he really is um he really is disagreeable. Yeah, and that's he, true. That's true. Wrote, yes, yes. And and I read his book um The City on the Edge of Forever that was about the making of that episode mm-hmm. and he talked about um well, how he didn't like his script changes, and or the you know the way Gene Roddenberry would change his scripts and ask for other things, and which I can understand Harlan not liking that because you don't really want someone to change what you've written, but but yeah, he was. Um, yeah, he's more he, he's of it's not just a paycheck. With, it's yeah. like he, this is his. Work. But he's been married. Yes. Granted, numerous times, but I mean, he has to have some likable attributes. To him, the thing is, and we've heard other other people talk about him. Though you know, he he's friends with with J. Michael Straczynski. Mm-hmm. Remember when we saw Straczynski in person, and he did he talked very fondly of Harlan Ellison. Of course, of course. So I'm saying he does have a good side to him. Yes, yes. But when it comes to the audience reaction, even watching old episodes of the Tom Snyder show, I mean, he personally he he knows how to stir the pot. He does, and in this, so in this interview, yeah, they're even saying that's all he's doing through the interview. <laughs> it focus, you know, like one of the things uh, that this interview focuses on is Harlan Ellison gave a speech for the Sci-Fi Writers of America, and basically he said he's resigning because because he he doesn't like how they don't support writers writing for TV and movies. He says that's where the real money is for writers, and he's right on that. 
at that time, though, you got to figure television was viewed as lowbrow. It's amazing yeah. how things have shifted. And I think that something like that is going on right now with the Hugo Awards because they want to start adding video games into the Hugo Awards because <laughs> video games are not Pac-Man and Space Invaders anymore. They have deep storylines. They're, they're very involved. And you have the old school that does not want to see video games being involved in the Hugo Awards. And I, and I think that we're, we're seeing time repeating itself because Harlan was saying this is a medium that can have some legitimacy to it. Times change and you, you have to change with it. And so mm -hmm. you, you see this growing thing. Um, another thing he said was about writing for TV. Well, well, he has kind of learned like to only write pilots now because, um, well, yeah, what he said is if you write a pilot and it doesn't get bought, well, well, you know, if the script turns out to not be good, then it doesn't get made. But if you write for a TV episode, he said, like, sometimes it's bad and it can still get made because they have to, once the TV show has been bought, they have to keep producing episodes. That's true. Because he wrote for Logan's Run. Yeah, but, well, he wrote, he wrote a good episode of that. And, really and it wasn't good. just well, the yes. pilot. But yes. I mean, so yeah, so, so that was one of his good experiences. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and this says that he's a big comic book fan. That was pretty cool, too. Yes. Grew up reading yep. comics. And it says that people have tried to, to blow him up twice. Like, there, there have been two buildings where there was a bomb, and they were <sighs> trying to kill to him. I hear things like that. How, yeah, that, that is, that's, that's way extreme. And he knows uh, Peter David, the, uh, you know, the Star Trek novelist and comic book writer. And, yeah, Harlan was actually the, the best man at Peter David's wedding. Isn't that wild? It's so cool. I like this quote in the article that says, I ran into Star Trek movie script writer Chris Bryant at the Seattle Star Trek thing. He said, You're Harlan Ellison, and I can see that you're a very wise man because you were smart enough not to get involved. And I said, Yeah, I don't envy you the job. I was talking with the independent producer at Paramount about the Star Trek movie, and he said, what would you do with the script if you were writing it? I told him, the first thing I would do is kill off Kirk in the first 15 minutes because he always held up the show. I'd get somebody else in there, younger and more interesting. And he started to laugh. He said, somebody had said something like that. Word got out and I had 25 calls from Shatner in the first half hour after the story appeared somewhere. I understand that Chris and Alan did, in fact, kill off Kirk somewhere in their script. I don't know for sure, but that's the rumor that I heard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, um, yeah, yeah, that that's pretty wild. So instead they killed off Spock a few years well, afterwards. Well, in the second movie, yeah, <laughs> which, yeah, but then they brought him back. But, I mean, uh, I can see what he's saying. Even at that, yeah, like I wouldn't have gone for that back then, the killing off Kirk. I mean, I know what he's saying because the fact that Star Trek needs to progress, which which happened with the motion picture as far as bringing in new life and bringing in um, younger actors. Yes. Future conventions. Star Trek Con 77, Richmond, Virginia, November 5th and 7th, 1977. August Party. College Park, Maryland, August 5th through 7th, 1977. State of the Art, a column of opinion by David Gerald. 
Well, he so he's having so he's just writing about some idea he had uh, to write for Star Trek, and he's saying that when uh, Sark and Amanda got married, maybe that was an experiment. I mean, what does that sound like? Another reference to Discovery? I mean, it, it does make you wonder if the Discovery writers like read this article or something. <laughs> Discovery writers are like, let's look at what happened when they tried to revive Star Trek back in the late 70s, and we're going to see if we could do the mistakes that they made. Let's just repeat the mistakes that they made. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I all the that's... things that they could have done to improve it, well, let's just ignore that. I know. I mean, isn't it, isn't it just amazing? Um, but but they use that word experiment like that. That goes back to um, someone telling Sark like about his human ex- experiment of um, marrying a human and adopting a human and having a son with a human. But but this was like this is such a weird story that you know you like it, it probably w- it wouldn't have been approved if he had submitted it as a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, Spock telling. Uh, Christine Chapel. I mean, but I mean, in the situation, they're stranded on a planet together, and Spock is telling Christine, you know, without without actually saying something like maybe we should get married because um, I I have to um, expand Vulcan DNA by adding human to, human humanity to it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Christine saying no because she's not going to marry him unless he actually loves her, which she doesn't think could happen. It, it's it's a weird idea for a story. He does mention in this article that he is not involved in Star Trek The Motion Picture at all, but he did run it by Gene Roddenberry, said that he would love to be an extra in the movie. And Which guess he what? He was. was. <laughs> well, yeah, they had a lot of extras in that movie, mm-hmm. and a lot of people that were that were fans that got to be in the movie. That that was pretty cool. And, of course, later he was also um, on the Deep, you know, the Deep Space Nine episode that with the Trials and Tribulations. Trials and Tribulations. Mm-hmm. Oh, but also in his story, I just have to mention he he does have Captain Chekhov, mm-hmm. and he also had someone named Admiral. It was George LaForge, which later, which later, um, well, well, because David Gerald did help develop the Next Generation, so he probably contributed right. that name, Jordy LaForge. The Star Trek Report, a fan news column by Susan Sackett. Okay, Susan Sackett has to give us some bad news. Paramount Studios has rejected the Star Trek movie script by Chris Bryant and Alan Scott. Yeah, it's so weird to put this in the same issue where they interviewed Alan Scott. Yeah. (laughs) This is a very, again, a confusing issue because you're saying, wait, what is this? Ten pages later, it's totally different than what I, I read previously. And it's actually going back and forth, a timeline starting in 1975 with Gene Roddenberry writing the script for Star Trek Two and showing how well, Star Trek it, Two or what at did the they time call it? that was called you know it Phase was called two. Star Trek yeah Phase, phase two. two was going to be called Star Trek Two and it goes back and forth with Paramount rejecting the script how it became not a television show but projecting into a movie different writers involved I mean it's just going back and forth back and forth back and forth and. This was going on for years. Well, it is interesting to see all the changes, and I think this this kind of thing still happens today. You, do you know how many like how many um, people were trying to write a Wonder Woman movie script? Oh before yeah, it you're right. Happened? You're right. Yes. I mean things yes. like that. Yeah, and and even. Do you remember I, what was the the woman that's on the Orville? 
They had pictures of her being yes. Wonder Woman. Well, that was from a TV pilot, though. She played Wonder Woman in a TV pilot. Can you imagine, instead of going to the movies, the idea, it's just like Star Trek. It was going to be on TV first, and then they decided to scrap TV and then go to make a motion picture of it. Yeah, and then it took so long. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, because I kept hearing so much news about it, and you know, it's on again, it's off again, kind of thing. And so we're reading here that that's the way it was uh, with the motion picture. This is a month by month breakdown from 1975 to 1977 of the back and forth between Gene Roddenberry and Paramount Studios. And I think a lot of it was they kept rejecting his scripts. Which happens because still, it, I mean, in Hollywood, a lot of scripts get rejected, even mm-hmm. by by um, well-known writers, producers, and directors. So this article also says that William Shatner said that he, he gave up on the motion picture. <laughs> and that's wild to think about it, that he had so much going on. He said, as far as I'm concerned, the Star Trek movie does not exist for me. I'm going off and doing my own thing, which includes Broadway, record albums, films. I've given up on the Star Trek movie. And, oh, it, well, it says that he actually signed a contract, but then a year, the contract only lasted a year, and then a year later, the, there was still no movie. He's going to move on with his life. Exactly. I get it. He can't, he can't hang around waiting for this, something that, that he doesn't know if it's going to happen or not. And this not. is William Shatner. This guy's the hardest working man in show business. Well, he Early is now. On. Even, even back, back then, then he I'm was, Back then yeah. he was doing it. This guy was a mover and shaker. He he did have other things. He he had, um. well, well you know, a few years after that he had T.J. Hooker. <laughs> but that was after the in motion the 80s, picture. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying he knew how to work the circuit on multiple levels. He he was finding work for himself. He, he was. definitely was. And so, but you know, and it's during this time, Leonard yeah. Nimoy was on the Broadway circuit. He was doing that too. Leonard mm-hmm. Nimoy was always working too. Always, yes. Bill was just doing different avenues. Right. So, so for these people, they had to. Well, it's interesting that that Shatner still came back to Star Trek. Uh, like it was probably a year after this was was when they were making when they started making the movie. So mm-hmm. they were able to convince him to come back, which I understand was was. By offering him a big salary, which, of course, mm-hmm. then he would do it, yeah. In the Trek report as well. Now, this is fascinating. We know that this has been going on for decades. We keep showing the similarities between Star Trek in the 70s and Discovery. There will be a fourth major network. Paramount has purchased the old Hughes network, and they would like Star Trek to be part of it, to be a fall series. They will be preparing 15 to 20 programs over the next two years. This is one of the possibilities that Gene is considering. He's also going to be putting out a flyer to our fan clubs to solicit the opinions of our fans. They were going to start a new network, and it was going to have Star Trek, just like um, just like they did with UPN. with Voyager, right? With Voyager and with Enterprise, having, having and with be- CBS <laughs> All Access. Exactly. I mean, this is something that is not new. Having a network that uses Star Trek as the pillar to draw people into the network and then have a variety of other shows as well. So they, you know, you know, the network executives said have always had this confidence in Star Trek. It's mm-hmm. just amazing to think that, like how they talk about how, how it's dead and all of that, but it's still, it still keeps coming back. And they still want to use it as, as a driving force in so many ways. And, I mean, they know it has, It already has an established fan base. That fan base is not going away. Mm-hmm. We're here. You know, we've been here since the 70s, and some people have been there since the 60s. 
unfortunately, the younger audience coming up now, if you talk to anybody that's, like when I was in kindergarten, I would come to school with my Mr. Spock doll, my Captain Kirk doll. No kindergartners, no third graders, no eighth graders are going to school with Star Trek lunchboxes or backpacks or anything. Oh, wait, they don't even make them, though. <laughs> well, you have <laughs> that's, to buy them that's off one the, the internet. That's one of the problems. You know, they, make yeah. Star, they make Star Wars, they make Marvel, they make DC, they make Disney. Star Trek just is not trying to attract a younger fan base. And, and see, so if they're if the networks have the confidence to make it their, their um, front runner show, then then why doesn't the studio have the confidence to make all this merchandise? You know, especially with lower decks, it's a no brainer. Yeah, it, it's very strange. We'll see what yeah. happens with Prodigy, but history is repeating itself so many ways. That's why we look at Starlog magazine and we see, wow, this is pieces of sci-fi history, pieces of Star Trek history that actually makes current Star Trek universe and behind-the-scenes work even make more sense. It, it puts it in perspective, and, and learning more about the history, and just seeing how, how things have changed and how things have not changed since then. Who hasn't at one time or another dreamed of being an astronaut? Haven't we all taken that fantasy trip? Imagining the rumble of the rocket's roar, the crush of acceleration, the dizzying drop of free fall in zero gravity, the thrill of knowing that the infinite universe is but a few centimeters away, chilling the outside of the ship's sleek steel skin. Realizing the dream, the first 1,000 tickets into space. A story about Nichelle Nichols' company, Women in Motion. What did you think about this article? This was interesting. Uh, saying that they want to, they're trying to recruit astronauts, which of course we, we read about with Nichelle Nichols. That was previous issue. It was right, a news right. article. Now a full-fledged multi-page article with beautiful illustrations and photos of Nichelle in action. So they're, they're calling it, Payload specialists, which would be these passengers that are ordinary people that get to go up in space. I, I mean, it sounds cool. I mean, yeah, we're reading about this. Like, this was this was an article from the seventies, and I, I did try to look it up. And so, and so, it, it was a program that they that they did have back then. They continued into the eighties. Mm-hmm. And early on, they needed to have a fitness assessment. They did. They had that. And I know For the average was, yeah. person, it's pretty hard. <laughs> that that was that was amazing. I know that I yeah I know that I didn't I don't meet the height requirement. Reading about that. And on the morning of April fourteenth, ten women in the thirty five to forty five age group voluntary signed up for the human research facility to begin a twenty seven day schedule of rigorous and demanding medical tests. Now I think it's interesting that they were choosing women from thirty five to forty five. I somehow imagine myself or or anyone who would be a recruitment to be on the younger side, but they were looking for middle-aged people. Yeah, I thought that was strange, too. It seems like they would want younger people, like the military. You know, the military wants, like, 18, 19 Your body is just naturally in better shape when you're younger. I mean, I don't know if it's just because they wanted, maybe they want, wanted more mature people because 
they could follow orders better or <laughs> something like that. Or maybe they wanted people who wouldn't be so excited because you need to stay calm in this situation. That's you know? <laughs> true. Yeah, it didn't break down the, the reasoning behind this, but it did show some of the things they had to use, such as the bio belt around their waist. Uh, we know that, here we go, real world science goes into Star Trek. Remember that belt buckle in the motion picture that would monitor which they didn't say in the movie. They but, didn't. Yes, but, <laughs> but we knew later on in fandom that's what it was. Yes. But in real world NASA, they use this bio belt. But we've seen in movies NASA uses those um the things that stick to your chest, just like you get in the hospital to yes, to, to yes. monitor your vitals. Mm-hmm. But to think of Na- uh, uh, Nichelle Nichols spearheading something like this that would encourage people to be interested and actively involved in the space program was just so amazing for the time. And so they really, um, they, they wanted technical people, mostly people who, you know, that, that I heard that was really, that was what I was reading. They, the first ones they recruited were, were the technical people, like, like mechanical engineers, those kind of things, or, or, um, engineers who knew something about this. And which is what I understand a lot of astronauts actually are. They're all, they're scientists or engineers. It totally makes sense. Okay, this is one of the things they have. A technician from a pharmaceutical company may spend two weeks in orbit operating a vaccine production module which will create drugs of unprecedented purity and potency. Wow. (laughs) And right now we're in the middle of the pandemic with the vaccine coming out. So, so that's just interesting to read. They, Going into space actually could have helped help develop. I don't think they did that with this, but that would have been neat. Um, well, we know that that's what, people who don't understand the amazing breakthroughs in NASA science and how they affect the whole world. You hear some people say it's a waste of money putting people into space. It's a waste of money developing uh, programs for space exploration or zero gravity. There's so much science that comes that trickles down to the average person, whether in the medical field, whether in engineering, uh, that, of course, a lot of this over the years has developed into our lives and affected our lives in a positive way. Yes, if you study a lot, you would find that, because I know I've read this about a lot of the stuff, um, things that they've learned from space travel has helped us here on Earth. It has helped with medical breakthroughs. And with um, a lot of science, even like, like growing vegetables in space, for, from doing that, they've learned a lot about things things that can help farmers grow things here on Earth. I mean, a lot of, of the science from space has been applied to Earth in very useful and helpful ways. It asks the questions, what are the particulars involved in actually being chosen for the space shuttle jaunt as a specialist? Well, NASA itself determines what type of experiments will be conducted on each mission. When that is done, the principal scientists involved form a panel which picks the appropriate freelance astronauts from matching fields. NASA still hasn't come up with a method for picking up the space-available payload specialists, but they're working on it. And that's the field that Nichelle is working on, is the payload specialists, people who are working hand-in-hand with the astronauts. I'm, it's exciting us looking back to know that Nichelle had made strides just her being on the Enterprise, but then knowing that in the real world she was able to affect lives for the space program, that just makes her even more endearing. 
and she has talked about it in cons what a what a rewarding experience that was to help people and meet these people that she was such an inspiration to and they have actually made this movie documentary now about Uhura about Nichelle Nichols and NASA and, and we're movie, going to see it as a group for, with, with our Star Trek friends yeah exactly It'll be, yeah the movie's coming out next week advertisement full color Star Trek episode cards each 8.5 by 11 card features one large and three small photos printed in full color from some of the most popular episodes in the Star Trek series only $1 each. Starlog Magazine Star Trek cards. Classified information. Free. The Federation Trading Post Star Trek Catalog. Largest inventory of Star Trek merchandise in the galaxy. Send 25 cents for first class postage and handling. Berkeley, California. Starfleet Training Manuals. Planets, Vulcans, Romulans, Klingons, Weapons. $2 each. Starfleet Fabrications. Rochdale, Massachusetts. Memory Alpha Fanzines 1 and 2. Trek Stories. Art. Number 3. Blooper Photos. Roddenberry Interview. $1.75 each. Star Cincinnati, Ohio. Original Star Trek Novels. Secret Agent. Enterprise. The Climb. Catalog Free. TK Graphics. Baltimore, Maryland. Collectors, Star Trek Stamps. A special offer for all Star Trek fans. The official Star Trek album containing pictures and facts about the crew, the Enterprise, and more. Plus over 100 magnificent full-color stamps based on the actual scenes from the TV episode. This great collection can be yours for only $7.95%. A regular $9.95 value. Send order to Starlog Magazine. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer. List other available Sweet Media programs. Loading Sweet Preview Program 4, The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. Um, so we jump to the ready room, and even though they're likely alone in there, the aspect ratio has them, like, basically oh standing gosh, inside like, of each other. <laughs> why are they so close and whispering in the ready room? It's like, I think there's no one else is in there. The doors are closed. You don't have to be right on top of each other, folks. I think they literally were just, like, had a three-way and then came out of it. It's like, now we've got to talk business. <laughs> Because you know, as they're speaking, their bodies are pressed up against one another. <laughs> exactly. Pretty much. It was just really weird to watch. Loading Holosuite Preview Program Four: Random Trek Review, a Star Trek review podcast. Okay, well, I, it's one of those things where, like, you would expect, like, as medical history gets better and everything, like, life expectancy gets longer, just like we've experienced in our own kind of world and planet right like it's way better now than it was 50 years ago versus 100 versus 200 so versus 5,000 years ago where you'd be lucky to live to like 30 yeah exactly we'd already <laughs> be done and dusted my friend well or we'd be super old right we'd be like the village elders <laughs> loading holosuite preview program for ladies trek library a podcast by women with a passion for star trek books
the author of this book, Dana Kramer Rolls. This is the only Star Trek book she's ever written, which would explain why I've never okay. read anything from her before. Yeah, I heard that she did write some other sci-fi books, but no other Star Trek. Yeah, and she does seem like like she's a fan. It seems from the way she handled the characters, I I would say she is a fan of Star Trek. Yeah, I definitely got the feeling that she was a fan. Um, and knew the characters. She has a PhD in folklore and history of religions. Cool. So that makes sense. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.